Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Today that I had made one significant error in my announcements. I forgot to tell you that we are not meeting here next week. We're meeting at Trinity Lutheran Church. Yeah, that's really exciting. So we're moving buildings, and it will be an evening service next Sunday. And that's pretty significant for us as a congregation. Um, And so really exciting uh, moment for us in, in the life of our parish. I get the privilege as a result of being with you today and Ethan being on vacation of preaching the last sermon from this pulpit and, and uh, in this building. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, and so as I contemplated the text for today, it occurred to me that the early church, when a letter would come in from one of the apostles, the early church would gather together and that letter would be read for everyone to hear. One letter, one reading, one hearing, all in one sitting. And I thought, as I prepared for this message today, it might be kind of fun to read Galatians from beginning to end, and that would be my sermon. That would be it. I'll let Paul do all the talking, and, and we could figure out what he wanted for us. But I won't do that. Uh, I imagine somebody might be annoyed by it. Um, but I, I am going to give an assignment for the week. So it's been a while since I've given an assignment. And I think five weeks exactly. And so here's the assignment. At some point this week, I want you to find an hour by yourself and read Galatians from beginning to end in one sitting, an uninterrupted period of time. This is, after all, a letter, and letters are to be are meant to be read in one sitting. You would never receive a long email or a long letter from somebody that you wanted to hear from and only read 15 lines of that letter and say, okay, I'm good. I'm going to wait till tomorrow to read the next 15 and the next 15 the day after. We, we just don't operate that way. So the assignment for you this week is to find time to read the entirety of the letter. And it's important for us to remember uh, this today, that it's a letter, uh, because at the end of this letter to the Galatian churches, uh, what happens is the final verses contain Paul's conclusion to his book. Uh, but, but they're written in the context of everything that's come before it. So Paul has written his thoughts and ideas out, and now he wants to bring uh, them to a conclusion. And so what he does, oh, by the way, this letter to the Galatian church is also called a cyclical letter. That is to say that Paul, in one of his missionary journeys in Acts chapter 13 and 14, when he was traveling through uh, the Galatia area, the Roman province of modern-day Turkey, he started a number of churches, and so he writes this letter back to all of those churches, not just one particular congregation. And so when the letter came to the congregation that received it, they all gathered together. It was exciting news. They would sit down together. They would read it. They would listen to it. They would discuss it, probably read it a couple times, to be quite honest. And then they would 
pass it on to the next little church in Galatia, the next little congregation. And so it was cycled through that region. It was passed on. And this letter has been passed on to us. And it's intended to be an encouragement to the churches there, as it is to us also. So what's Paul been saying to his readers and why? How are we to understand this letter for ourselves today? And we're only taking a look at one small piece. I realized as it was being read this morning that I had prepared my sermon on all of Galatians 6, not just the 10 verses that we read. So we'll have to do a little bit of work. Maybe grab your phone, pull open the book of Galatians and your, uh, your Bible apps or whatever and, and see if we can follow along. But I think... As we work through this passage a bit, we'll find some identifying overarching themes from the letter that will be helpful to us. And perhaps we might be instructed from it as well. A couple of main points that I hope to make today uh, with support from the letter. In typical fashion, Paul ends his epistle with a a section on practical living. And what he does there in his letter writing, in the end sections of his letters, the practical application of his ideas are to emphasize those overarching themes. A significant issue in the churches of Galatia at the time is that people, after hearing the gospel of grace from Paul, have developed a significant attitude of hierarchism, which assaults the spirit-filled life. One commentator suggested this. That was the chief attraction of legalism the opportunity to measure oneself relative to another and appear superior to one's fellows. So in our collect, which we prayed earlier today, we requested from God that we would love our neighbor and be united to one another with pure affection. This was a key issue in the Galatian church, and it's not unique to the ancient churches in Galatia um, alone. Right? That is, it's something that all churches, I think, find themselves being challenged with. The tendency for us might be to politely hear this word, perhaps shrug our shoulders a little bit and say to ourselves, it's not really my issue. It's not really something I need to be concerned with, not something I need to address. In Paul's churches, he knew that people believed that some of the folks there were better than others. He understood, he knew that. Why? Because they were following the law or they were creating rules in different ways. They were following the the law, and as they followed the law, that made them more effective Christians. The commentator continues, in areas particularly open to the temptation of hierarchical appraisal, like the awareness of one another's sin or burden, that's verse 1 and verse 2 of that chapter, Paul reminds them to be spiritual. So he emphasizes this idea of living the spiritual life, particularly in chapter 5 of Galatians. The spirit-led individual will work toward restoration. That's what Paul is suggesting here in chapter 6, verse 1, which has the effect of obliterating the wrong, which could be used to strengthen one's claim of superiority against the erring brother or sister. So often when we see each other's struggles, or we see each other's brokenness, or we see one another's sinfulness, we position ourselves to think, I'm not like that, I'm better than them. We can find ourselves holding positions of pride or arrogance. And in doing so, 
what we're really doing is we're really demonstrating our own brokenness and our own legalism. The opposite is also true. When we offer one another grace and live from within spiritual um, places and we operate from within the fruits of the Spirit, what happens is we live out of the overflow of God's goodness and grace and spirit within. So Paul, for Paul, there are two primary means of living. Two. Either from the place of legalistic Jewishness, and he talks about the works of the flesh, or from the spirit-led fruitfulness, which he says is works of the spirit. So in chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, he says, you reap what you sow. If you sow your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So this encapsulates the ideas that Paul is addressing with his readers. He speaks directly to the church in verse 9. He says, the manifestations of the Spirit in the lives of believers is actively doing good, which is especially appropriate when it benefits the family of God. So it's important to ask ourselves, am I living actively according to the Spirit and doing good from a place of God's goodness and a place of God's grace? Or am I living out of my own ideas, my own determinations, my own opinions, and without the fruit of the Holy Spirit? The Galatians are being challenged by Christians who previously were Jews. And during this time in the history of the church, they were trying to figure out their identity in faith. Are we Jewish or are we Christian? Are those two things separate? Or is there a third thing we're Jewish Christian? They're trying to figure that out. And the reason that's important is it has to do with the, the rules and the laws that come with the Jewish perspective. That is not necessarily a negative thing because the laws were intended to assist and help the 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 believer, to follow God well. And so the Galatian church is challenged in this way. And the Christian lineage does come from the Jews. After all, we follow a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. And participants in the church were asking this question, who are we? Jews, Christians, or something in between? The issue is primarily here related to the law of Moses, which for Jews was a prerequisite to faith. And so Paul uses this interesting term in verse 8. He says, so to the flesh. It's important to note the double meaning here. The Jewish Christians demanded that to be a Christian, one first had to become Jewish. And that meant primarily circumcision. Circumcision is a fleshly act that they were requiring as proof of becoming a Christian. And so these Jewish Christians or Judaizers required the new converts to follow the Jewish law. And Paul understood this to be the things of the flesh. Circumcision was only one of the required particular outward acts that generally followed the law of Moses as a requirement for entry into community. There were a whole bunch of other things, in fact, hundreds of laws. Some of them were related to tithing or praying in particular ways. Right? We maybe have to use the Book of Common Prayer. Or we can't pray spontaneously or who knows what sorts of laws they, we might attach. Right, Washing and dressing in particular ways. 
And Paul corrects his reader to ensure that they understood engaging in any act of the flesh, not only circumcision, was and is contrary to God's way. The Judaizers were attempting to build their own misguided view of spirituality. Verse 12 and 13. And they were doing that by forcing the Galatians into a dependent relationship. That is to say, those who allow themselves to become circumcised would then find themselves beholden to others to determine their spiritual inclusion into the church. You see how this hierarchy starts to build itself. So let me pull these ideas into our world today. I think it's easy for us to say, I don't really add anything to faith like that. Aren't we more comfortable, though, with people who come to grace, who are educated and sophisticated and cultured and well-read? We're more comfortable when visitors look the part and sound the part. Well, let me pause just for a minute to remind us that we're in ordinary time, right? Our season is, uh, well, we don't have it there. It's green. Only one green stole here, right? It's a chance for us to consider the possibilities that we, like the Galatians, may place additional requirements on each other to be recognized as mature or spirit-filled Christians. It's our fallen nature, It's our human tendency to expect or require specific characteristics or behaviors of one another. I know we do these things in our hearts, at least. I hate to say it. I do. As a pastor, that's probably one of the things over my life that I've worked the most on. And that is to, to be gracious and kind, to be open and willing to allow there to be those differences. It's not about me or what I want or what I think. Sometimes, on occasion, we even might speak those things out loud when we think we're better than others or expect others to hold our law. When we do that, Paul says, we're sowing to the flesh. Let me offer a rather simplistic example. When Sarah and I were first married, I had just started seminary at a very well-to-do area of the country, Cape Ann, if anybody's been there, north of Boston at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. It's a rather pretentious place to live. And unless you're third generation born in their hospital, you're really not a Cape Anner. You are an outsider. And at the time, I was a seminary student. I was studying to uh, be ordained, to head into ministry. And this particular church we were serving at was a church that was sponsoring me for ordination. So they had... And their leadership gathered around me and investigated my life and our lives together. And they said, we think Don is called to ministry. And so they were sponsoring me for this work. We served there at that church for seven years as campus missionaries to the Gordon College community. We attended church for five years before we were invited into another family's home for a meal. Five years. They understood that we were not from Cape Ann. And in their minds, we had nothing to offer. So the residents didn't engage us, even as we served them every single Sunday. Why does this matter? What what change occurs um, like the one that we're about to embark upon? We're about to move into a new building, and that's really exciting, but it's going to stir up some things in us, I think. It's going to cause us to have opinions about that space. I think we might have a tendency to 
require our personal desires and our opinions to be lived out for the group. Right? After all, I know it's best, right? It's my nature. So perhaps we're not so concerned about who participates in church, right? But there might be other places where we hold on to other extra standards that we deem crucial. Every one of us will have our own ideas about this new space that we're moving into, what we ought to do there, how we should do ministry in that building. This is a significant change for us in the parish. And the, over the 16 years of this, this group, we've moved different places. This is, for me, my first move from this place. Uh, we moved from Sweet Genies to here uh, five years ago, I think, five or six years ago. And it had some changes, implications for us. And this change is significant for our parish. And we will all have ideas about what's right or wrong in terms of the space that we're moving into. <clears throat> I have already playfully teased Ethan about the altar. If you've been in that church, you know the altar is not sticking out from the wall. It is against the wall. And I've teased Ethan, oh, this is fantastic. We get to face east and have our backs to the people. <laughs> Right? And Ethan scowled at me and said, no, that's not happening. Right? We've, we've built a, another altar, and it will be placed out front. I was totally joking with him because I knew that would be his response. But it kind of gives away some of what we might find ourselves leaning into a little bit. As we end our time here in Fithian, I think it's important for us to consider the transition. None of these things really matter, right? The color of the carpet, where a particular ministry ought to meet, how the space is used. Should the neighbor kids play in the basketball, basketball in the parking lot? It's awesome, I think, opportunity for us to engage the neighbors and the, the children that live in that neighborhood. Or how about this? What temperature should the air conditioning be set to? Are you kidding? We get air conditioning. That's fantastic. I can't wait. Tonight when I preach this, I'm going to be dying. It's going to be sad. Honestly, there's an endless list of things that we might find really important to our own personal expectations of what we think we ought to be doing and going uh, and how it should go. And so this transition, I think, is an opportunity for us to expand our perspective on mission, on our mission. Remember what it says, I think, maybe even in the front of the bulletin, the back of the bulletin, there it is, right there at the front of the bulletin, it says, where God's free grace roots us, renews us, and reaches through us. It doesn't say anything about the, the way we should do ministry. It's about God's grace changing us and allowing us to do ministry. And we're making this change from Fithian Chapel over to uh, Trinity Lutheran to expand the mission and ministry of grace. So I hope we make this move and watch the Lord work as we figure out how to be united to one another with pure affection, as Paul says, as the colic says, sorry. My hope is that we would avoid adding earthly or fleshly ideas to things there. And that we would rely on the Spirit to direct us, that we would be focused on being concerned about walking in the Spirit and bearing 
the fruits of love, kindness, and gentleness, just to name a few from the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Rather than pressuring others to conform to individual expectations that we might have about what's best. Okay, enough of the shoulding, right? I'm going to step away for a second. As Paul instructs us, we have to consider the possibilities, the positive possibilities, because in chapter 6, verse 8, he says, but if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. How does one sow to the Spirit? As I mentioned earlier, the importance of doing good for and to one another. I think this looks like what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, restoring one another in gentleness, bearing one another's burdens, verse 2, sharing all good things, verse 6. So, of course, we also need to reflect upon chapter 5, where, by contrast to the works of the flesh, are the fruit of the Spirit. You're familiar with them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. I got them out of order. And he says, because against such things there is no law. What happens is that when we understand God's grace in our own lives, when we are consumed by the unending freedom we have in Christ, when we realize that we are no longer bound to a legalistic, self-imposed set of extra laws, we're able to offer that grace to another person. We're able to trust that the Lord is working in each other. Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 16, and that if we live by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So that's, that's honestly my encouragement for us today. So I just want to walk us through Galatians very quickly here, just so that we can see this thread that runs through it. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Yet we know that a person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing works of the law, because no one will be justified by works of the law. Chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But in Christ, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, Did you receive the Spirit by doing good works of the law or by believing what you heard? And Paul uses Father Abraham as an example of proof of this idea. Chapter 3, verse 11 through 14 is evident, he says, that no one is justified before God by the law. For the one who is righteous will live by faith. But the law does not rest on but the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He reminds his readers, too, that the law came 400 years after the promise that was given to Abraham. In other words, the law had now no power over the one who had faith. And if you have faith, then you are an heir of Abraham and a recipient of grace. Chapter 3, verse 24 says, The law was our disciplinarian until Christ came 
so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Chapter 5, verse 3. Once again, I testify to every man that lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the entire law. You want to be justified by the law? You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. How about that imagery related to cutting? Chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're supposed to be about. That's what it will look like over in the new building. Chapter 5, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Paul ends his letter by encouraging his readers to become a new creation. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. I suspect that as we find ourselves in a new building, we will think of ourselves as a new creation, a new church, a new opportunity, new ministries will come along. We have different space. We can utilize that space in new and creative ways. But we could also find ourselves saying, no, that's not how it ought to be done. But personally, are you a new creation? Are you growing in faith? Becoming a new creation in Christ happens by believing in Jesus as the Son of God, who is the Savior of the world as the result of his death and resurrection, and by the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is the only requirement to be included in the promise of Abraham and live as an heir of the kingdom of God. So if you've not experienced the grace of God through becoming a new creation in Christ with the filling of the Holy Spirit, you can right now. This grace is on offer to you from the Lord. During communion, there will be a prayer team, I think. Anybody on that team? I forget who it is. There we go. Got, I see that hand. There'll be a prayer team to pray with you. And of course, after the service, I'm available. I want to pray with you as well to invite the Lord to create a new thing in you. I don't think this is a one-time faith act, but it's an ongoing move of the Holy Spirit, an ongoing activity of God in each of our lives. The basis for acceptance before God was not found in ethnic, educational, gender, financial, or social status, but in an individual's possession of God's Holy Spirit through faith. And one of the ways we demonstrate our participation in Christ is seen during the celebration of the table. We call it the great thanksgiving, where we thank God for his provision. 
And it's during that prayer-filled time around this table where we recognize the truth of who Jesus is, what he has done and how we participate with him in the receiving of his body and blood. It's during that time where we offer up ourselves as living sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And we invite the Holy Spirit to do his work in us as we eat and drink. As, as I read the Eucharistic prayer, listen for the language of Holy Spirit in that prayer. It's really there. It's powerful. And it's important. In that meal, we join together in unity with Christ and with one another and experience ourselves as new creations. So in summary, I want to invite Dr. Walter Elwell, my New Testament professor in college, to comment from his commentary. He says this, Paul's advocacy of an individual's possession of God's Holy Spirit as a new reality struck at the very heart of established Judaism's exclusiveness the law as the guardian against man's immorality, the tutor which pointed toward the holiness of God, while revealing the imperfect state of man, had now been superseded by the appropriation of God's own spirit into the life of each one who is found to be in Christ. Thus, rather than standing as an outsider to God's will and ways, the new reality brought humankind into an insider position, where the spirit would interact directly with each person's own nature. And this interaction called for no mediator or ceremonial signs of inclusion, like circumcision. People's response in the light of this new reality was to keep in step with the spirit, to regard all mankind the way God does, and to continually test themselves as to the constancy of their walk by comparing their actions and attitudes to that of the fruits of the spirit and conversely to the works of the flesh. Bearing spiritual fruit, not circumcising the flesh, had become the tangible sign of one's inclusion into the new reality of God's kingdom. It's my prayer for us that as Grace Anglican Church moves over to a new space, we would be known in this way as spirit-filled and spirit-led people. Amen. They took your life, they could not.